Glad that you're here this morning. We are continuing our sermon series that we started a week ago. We are actually going through the book of Daniel. A uh, couple of things real quick. You know, our church is not accustomed to going through books in the Bible. Uh, our church is accustomed to going through sermon series that deal with topics. And one of my concerns was that uh, you guys would actually not show up and tune out because the reality is we live kind of in a consumer culture, society. And we kind of go, does that sermon series topic speak to me, address my issue? If it doesn't, I'm not going to show, and I'm not going to invite friends. And the reality is, when we go through an entire book in the Bible, if you come to every Sunday going, okay, I've got these major issues, can you please speak to that? It may or may not happen. But it's the difference between, I guess, um, difference between going through a book and learning a larger, bigger picture of who God is and what he is doing and how that speaks to us in our lives, versus going, this is my need, so speak to that. This is my need. Then we have a narrow picture and view of who God is. Does that make sense? So I, I'm trying to teach you guys that instead of like a, a fast food, junk food, like, ah, that was good, kind of a slow, steady, long, six-course meal, you know, where you're just kind of, does that make sense, you know? So that at the end you're going, that was delicious. Uh, I like some of it more than others, but that was really delicious. So that's, that's kind of where we're at. Okay. The reason why we're studying the book of Daniel is this. We're trying to ask the question of how do we as Christians live in our society and interact with the culture around us? This, to me, is one of the most critical issues facing the church today on how we as Christians interact, how we as Christians live in the culture at large. Uh, the, the way that this comes to me as a pastor is I have lots of conversations with folks who say things like this. A college student who says, Peter, I, I go to a secular university and in my dorm room, I live next to a Muslim. I live next to somebody who is a Hindu. Two doors down is an agnostic. Five doors down is a proclaimed atheist. How do, how do I live as a Christian on my dorm? How do I live as a Christian on my dorm in such a way that I remain distinct as a Christian, that I'm not a coward, but at the same time, I don't come across as this fundamental weirdo who's just turning people off? I have conversations like this. I work in a place where I'm the only Christian. My boss is, a ver- is very hostile, if, at best indifferent to Christianity, and I've heard him or her talk about Christians in general, and man, if they found out that I was a Christian or a, a, a committed follower of Jesus, I live in a workplace where it's hard for me to be a Christian. How do I live my life in a distinct way as a follower of Christ? conversations like this and don't think this is silly you know say so I grew up in a certain Christian culture certain background and my co-workers are inviting me out for a drink after work and all of a sudden I feel this incredible guilt is it okay for me to go out for a drink and if I go what kinds of places to drink how much to drink and the list goes on Is it okay for me, we cover this, to date a non-Christian? I'm dating a non-Christian right now, and the guy's actually pushing me to go further than I want in physical intimacy. How do I live my life as a distinct Christian? I talk to a, a model in our church. There's a person who models for a living, and she's constantly surrounded in a world that bombards her with the message that's counter to what Scripture says. And her big questions are, which jobs do I take, which jobs do I not take? Which parties do I attend and not attend after one of these shows? Actors in our church are saying, what parts do I take? What parts is it okay for me to take as a Christian actor or an actress? I'm a stay-at-home mom. I'm involved in a mom's group with a group of six, seven moms, and I'm the only Christian. How do I live my life as a distinct Christian? Again, where they see Christ in me because I'm living a distinct life, and yet at the same time, I'm reaching out to them. in a way that engages them. Is this an issue that anybody else wrestles with? (laughs) Can I just tell you something? If these questions or these issues are never an issue with you, you've already assimilated or you've separated from the culture at large. And there's nothing, there's nothing more damaging to the Christian witness and faith than either separating and living our lives withdrawn or assimilating in a way that there's nothing distinct about us. Let me put it this way. The question that we're wrestling throughout the sermon series, how do you reach out without selling out? 
How do you reach out without selling out? How do you live your life as a distinct Christian? Maintain your distinct identity as a follower of Christ, and yet at the same time, you're radically engaged and involved in culture. You're conversant with the culture at large. You are somebody who is actively engaged in building relationships with people around you in such a way that they see Christ. How do you find that balance? Is it hard for anybody? Can I hear, is it hard for anybody? Yeah, it's hard. For crying out loud, I'm a pastor and it's hard. It's really hard. It's really, really hard. Jesus said in John 17, be in the world but not of it. To use a little Christian biblical lingo. He says, be as as wise as snakes but as innocent as doves. And he was getting to that issue of how do you as a Christian live in this culture and radically reach out and not assimilate. These are enormous questions facing the church today. That's why the book of Daniel is absolutely appropriate for us because it's in the book of Daniel, you guys, that we see an example of a man who found this balance of not withdrawing and not separating, but also not assimilating into the culture. We see an example of a man who lived in a culture where he was bombarded with messages that said, assimilate, lose your distinctive identity, be like everybody else. And yet, somehow, he remained true to his convictions and his faith, but was actively able to engage the culture at large. Daniel, book of Daniel is exilic literature. It's one of the books in the Bible in the Old Testament that describes and speaks of the life, the story of God's people in exile. The nation of Israel had been taken from the nation of Israel into exile in the, in the country nation of Babylon by the king Nebuchadnezzar. And the significance of that story context is this. All of us are God's people, the nation of Israel, who once found themselves living in a culture, living in a society that was very friendly, affirming of their biblical beliefs, of their God, now found themselves in a culture and a society where people were hostile to their belief in one God. Society that was secular, and a society that was bombarding them with messages of what it meant to find meaning in life, purpose in life, how to go about being a citizen in that city. They found themselves in a place where they could either withdraw and separate or assimilate or remain distinct as God's people and yet engage culture. It's very appropriate for us today. Part of the reason why this discussion, you guys, and this conversation is more difficult for us as Christians is because we have been raised and the church in America or West has interacted with culture in certain ways that's conditioned us to interact with the culture in certain ways. And, and I, I shared some of these last week and I don't want to spend too much time on this. I'm just going to plow right through, okay? Plow right through on these, these different ways that, that we Christians have, in America, especially in the West, has interacted with the culture. And, 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 and I want you to just think about the context of where you came from and where you are. And as we, as we continue the book of, uh, study the book of Daniel, we'll see why this is so important. One of the ways that the church has interacted with the culture, and we could describe it this way, not in the world and not of the world. Not in the world and not of the world. This Christian perspective says that culture is bad. There's nothing redemptive about culture. There's nothing good about culture. The moral decay in our society is because of culture. And and the mindset is sort of like, this is culture, it's bad, so we're going to separate, we're going to withdraw. Culture is polluting in all of its aspects. There's nothing good about it in arts, in film, in media, nothing good about it. And so we're just going to withdraw and have this fortress mentality. There's this dualistic approach towards culture and church. Church is good, culture is bad. And one of, the be- one of the results is that there's a parallel culture, a parallel universe that these group of Christians have, have, have formed. This is the advent now of homeschooling, of Christian high schools, of Christian colleges, of Christian entertainment, Christian gyms, Christian movies, Christian everything. <laughs> Look, I've got nothing against Christian films per se. They're just, as I mentioned last week, they're just not done very well. You know what I mean? So you adopt the bunker mentality, and you see cultures beyond saving. By the way, some of you grew up in church cultures like this, and churches like this are losing their youth because when they get to a certain stage where they're going, my life issues are not being addressed here. They say, I'm going to walk away, and a lot of you are here 
after years of walking away from the church. Here's another way that the church has responded to the culture. It's called not in the world and oblivious to the world. And here's what this looks like. It's very similar to the first perspective, but in this perspective, there's sort of over-optimism. In other words, it's the same mentality of not engaging culture, not dealing with culture at large, but there's this over-optimism of God is somehow going to send revival. God is going to send a supernatural intervention, and the culture will just be transformed miraculously. And so we're going to focus on evangelism and evangelism sort of picking off individual people, you know, at targets. And we're going to focus on discipleship. The mentality is we're going to build up our church, we're going to build up our ministry, and as a result, this ministry will then go out. But unfortunately, the people kind of huddle in their masses and become consumed with us and growth and so on and so forth. By the way, these two perspectives is areas where rapture, left behind series, apocalyptic literature. God is going to come and deliver and whisk away the Christians and the entire world is going to go to... You know, you know what's really disconcerting for me is when I walk into some Christian bookstores, the amount of shelf space given to apocalyptic literature about end times and book of Revelation and all these people have theories. You know, I feel like if the Apostle John was here today, he would go, really? I didn't know that. Here's another perspective. In the world and above the world. And you guys, by the way, part of the reason why I'm going over this is you got to understand how the culture sees the church in America. And this is how the church, uh, culture sees the church in America because they're the loudest. They're the loudest. In the church and above the world, it says, we are in a culture war. God has ordained us as his army to fight this culture war. We cannot interact in society unless we have the cultural power. And so what are we going to do? We're going to try and remain, we're going to try and remain, or maintain the status of God's favored people in God's favored nation, the nation of new Israel called America. (laughs) And if we could only go back, if we could only go back to the good old days and you go, when were the good old days? They say like 1940s, 1950s, you know, when things were really good. And I've said this before, look, look. Ask African-Americans if they want to go back to 1940s and 50s. Ask Japanese-Americans who spent time in intermittent camps for purely being Japanese if they want to go back. Go back to when? Go back to when Christianity, or go back to when the United States was a Christian nation? I'll argue with you until I'm blue in the face that America was never a Christian nation. That the founding fathers were more committed to deism than they were to biblical truth. The language of self-evident truth is not biblical language. It's the language of natural law and deism. Another story for another sermon series, I guess. <laughs> You're sitting here going, Peter, why are you going up? We're not, look, the, the reality is our struggle is with what I'm going to talk about now. This isn't our struggle, our church, most of you. But you have to know, because when a non-Christian wants to interact with you and you say, I'm an evangelical Christian, They automatically go, you've separated, you've drawn. How do you, you gotta know. Be educated in terms of how people perceive you. Okay, so there's another perspective though. Separatist withdrawal, and the other perspective is assimilation. This is how the church in America has has also approached our culture. In this model, we keep the external trappings of Christian faith and practice, but we've adopted the more fundamental views and perspectives of the dominant. Our faith has become privatized. In other words, we keep the external trappings of, you know, we, we, we look like Christians, we sort of act like Christians, but when it comes to fundamentally core of who we are and how we view sex, how we view money, how we view issue of race and ethnicity, how we view our interaction with the world, we are no different from the world. And the world can't see us and see anything distinct about us. And this is more than just, you know, I don't smoke, I don't drink too much, and I don't go around having sex. Fundamentally, at the core of who you are, is there anything radically different about you? We've become sort of a subculture, and we've assimilated. We are in the world, and we are of the world. You know what I notice is that many times with Christians, we're schizophrenic. We go back and forth. It's like we assimilate in some ways, and then we joke, we separate. Let me give you an example, okay? There's a college campus in Evanston. I won't, I won't give you the name of the college campus. Okay. There's a, there's 
I was camping in Evanston, and, and, and furthermore, there's a Christian fellowship, Christian fellowship in this, uh, okay? And I know this because my wife attended this Christian fellowship in this college campus, which I won't name, it's in Evanston. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 and this, Christian, this Christian fellowship had this issue, has this issue, and that issue was this, whenever somebody turned 21, it, it, whenever somebody turned 21, it was like tradition to go and get just hammered. You know, go and get hammered. So there's all this like, is it right? Is it not right? All this stuff. But, but the, the, the schizophrenia thing, you know what's so funny is, is that these people who are like, that's sinful, that's bad. How can you go and get hammered? That's just not right. Right? When they turn 21, they go get hammered. And then like a week later, they go right back to, that's not right. How can you do? Make up your mind. Is it bad or is it, you know what I mean? But that's how we interact, though, with the culture at large. There's certain areas. Look, am I just blown out? You guys, can you, are you guys, like certain areas we're like, we've totally assimilated. And then certain areas we're separatists and withdraw, and we don't know how to see the world around us, not as a battlefield, but as a mission field. We don't know how to see the culture around us as something to engage, be conversant in, so that we reach them for Jesus. We have a hard time realizing what it means that as a Christian, it doesn't mean that it cuts us off from the involvement with culture at large, but it changes you and it changes your involvement with the culture at large. But that we're called to be conversant and engaging of the culture around us. That we don't see our neighborhoods and our schools and various things as a battlefield in which to fight wars, culture wars on, but places to win, to reach for Jesus. These are hard questions. And the book of Daniel, book of Daniel gives us, I believe, principles and truths that you and I would might be able to embrace that would help us in this journey. How do we as Christians live, and this is so huge, this is so huge. This is directly related to so many things in our Christian life. So God, help us this morning as we jump in now to this journey, God. And Lord, as we, as we venture out in this journey, we ask and pray for your wisdom and your truth to penetrate our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn your book, the Bible to the book of Daniel. Let's just plow right through this. I have so many things that I wanted to share today. I don't know if we'll get through it all. There are times as we study the book of Daniel where I'll just read chunks of passages and then give principles. There's some Sundays where I'll give, I'll give principles and sort of look at the scripture passages. This morning, I just want to go right through Daniel chapter 1. Verse 1. Follow along with me. In the year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, and he put it in the treasure house of his gold. You guys look up here. Immediately, we are reminded and told of the shocking echo of Jeremiah 29, where God says, the fact that you're in exile, the fact that you're surrounded by non-Christians, the fact that you are in this place of pluralism, the fact that you are in this very secular society is not accidental. I've sent you there. It's part of my plan. Don't bemoan and groan about the fact that you're now all of a sudden the only Christian without Christian support, bombarded with hostility and indifference. He says, embrace the fact that I have sent you there and ask the question, why has God sent me here? The nation of Israel and the people of God were struggling and wrestling with this. And God's message to them was this, get a bigger picture for what I am doing. My purpose to send you in that place is to bless them and to bless you. My purpose is to do something through you and do something in you. You guys, what if we as Christians saw what what was happening in our culture as an opportunity to embrace rather than opportunity to reject What if we saw the challenges that a culture faces and it's hard being a radical Christian as not something to fear but a challenge to embrace as an opportunity? What if we saw the places in which God sends us and the culture in which we live as an opportunity to do something kingdom missional rather than something to withdraw from and separate? 
Let me be even more personal. What if the places that you found yourself in today, season in life, whether it be a student, a mom, a parent, or even your work, what if you saw those places an opportunity, something to do, a kingdom missional thing, rather than bemoaning and groaning the fact that why am I in this difficult place that feels like exile? Are you tracking? Talk to a guy last week who came up after the sermon. Bright, bright young man. And uh, he was just sharing with me that the, the sermon really connected with him because he's in a place at work right now where, one, he feels like the work is sort of beneath him. He's overqualified for what he's doing. Can anybody relate? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Christian support system isn't there anymore. And he's asking the question of God, why am I here? What am I doing? Sort of wasting my time. And God speaks to his heart and says, I've sent you there. You're in that place, not by accident, but by my purpose. You may be the only Christian kingdom person that they'll come in contact with all week. I got another wonderful email from another wonderful person in our church. She happens to be married to Michael. She is wonderful. You agree with that, Michael? Here's briefly her email. Sunday's message really provided some much-needed insight as to why I may be working at, and she works for a television station. We'll, I can't say what it is, so we'll call it TV station XYZ, okay, XYZ. Each weekend I'm humbled, very humbled. I bring anchors or scripts and run off to get this and that for this person and the other, and then at the end of the week I get my humble paycheck for pennies. Every weekend I stand by the printers, practically in tears, asking myself, Why? the heck am I doing here? But slowly as I listen to your message, I realize that at X, Y, and Z, I am exposed to a lot of hurting people on a regular basis. Also, going from working with all Christians, which became nauseating, (laughs) I love that, to working with just a few here and there has felt really good and ironically more authentic. Slowly, I'm starting to realize that I get calls from people, mostly my people, the black community, who desperately call this station seeking for someone, anyone to help them. What I'm finding is that most of them aren't aware of their civil and social rights and are seeking out the news station as a resource. It dawned on me on Sunday that press. my reason for being there is tied up in them. Every time I'm at the desk, I take a number of calls from people, mostly African Americans, who have been cut off and who have been treated wrong. The most recent calls of injustice have been people from whose lights and gas have been cut off who have been evicted. I'm learning that these calls are all related to the gentrification that's going on in the city and as a result of the landlords who are refusing CHA vouchers. The calls I'm taking are from people who are just dealing with the news that they have to pick up their things and once again be relocated to the suburbs where urban planners, the city, and real estate agents have collaborated to place them. Sometimes, if not most, I cannot help the people I come in contact with, which is frustrating. I do what I can with the resources I have. I direct them to 311, give them the numbers to Cook County Tax Assessor, to the EEOC, to the Inspector General's office, and sometimes that's all they need. Other times, they just need someone to sit down to them and explain their rights, and and still other times, they just need someone to listen. I do whatever I can because I know more than likely their story won't make it on the air. Through it all, after your message, I think perhaps I'm there for a reason. And then she goes on. A gifted, young, talented woman making copies, making copies at a printer, saying, why am I here? She hears the voice of God saying, I sent you there. I sent you there. Do you have that perspective about your exile? You might be the only person they come in contact with who they can see Jesus in. God says, not just something through them, but God says, I want to do something in you, in you. And I shared this last week. This is powerful for me, right? Do you know what, do you know what happens to us Christians when we get out of our fortress mentality, we interact with the culture, we live in this city, interact with this city? Do you know what happens to us? We realize that a lot of the answers that we have as Christians are pat answers, and when we go to these people with these pat answers, our pat answers are stupid. We also realize that the reason why people don't believe in God, we think, well, they're just, the reason why some people don't believe in God, they have very good reasons why they don't believe in God. You know what it does to you to be in exile? It makes you a much more thoughtful Christian, 
much more critically thinking Christian. We live in a relativistic society. And listen, Christians, unless you know what you believe and why you believe, you are never going to make it. You're going to be swept up in this sea of anything goes. Do you know why you believe what you believe? Is what you believe personal opinion or is it sound doctrine? Why do you believe what you believe? It keeps me real as a Christian to be in the world engaging. How are you doing? How am I doing? Story goes on. Verse 3, then the king ordered Aphanaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Verse 4, young men without any physical defect, they were handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. I love those names. I love pronouncing those names. To Daniel Belshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Ezra Abednego. <laughs> Several important observations here. We know that we learned this last week that Daniel and his friends were part of the aristocracy, the elites in Judah. Okay. And we know that the reason why they were taken in exile from, from, from Israel or Judah to Babylon by the king Nebuchadnezzar was this. How do you as a king, how do you as, as, as a king like Nebuchadnezzar expand your kingdom, expand your kingdom without having to destroy the nation that you have just captured and conquered? How do you make them vassal nations that will fulfill your purpose to expand your kingdom without having to destroy them? Here's what they did. They took the cultural elites, the leaders of the military, the government, the business, so on and so forth. They brought them and they literally culturally assimilated them into their culture. They Babylonized them, if you will, into their culture. So the deportation of the young men, including Daniel, from Judah to Babylon, and we're going to see exactly what happened to them, was to assimilate into the culture of Babylon, to make them Babylonians, and then disseminate them into the larger culture, including their own people, at which point they can become vassal nations. Are you tracking so far? It was wonderful strategy, brilliant strategy. This is how they were going to destroy the Israelites' distinct identity as God's people. Cultural assimilation. That's how you subjugate Israel. And what did they do for this cultural assimilation? Three things. First of all, we told that they're given new Babylonian names. To Daniel, he was Belshazzar. To, okay, I'll stop right there, okay? They were given Babylonian names. The name, Bab- uh, the, the, the name Daniel in Hebrew literally meant God is my judge. God is my judge. Yahweh is my judge. And he's given the name Belshazzar, which had to do with the pagan god of Babylon. And it meant may a god, a Babylonian god, protect his life. So the young men, including Daniel, are given Babylonian. Secondly, it says they were given a complete and thorough education in Babylonian culture. They attended the Harvard of Babylon. Were given the highest levels of education in liberal arts that anybody could receive. And thirdly, we're going to see, they were given the king's food. And for anybody that's familiar with the story knows that the reason why they were given king's food wasn't just for dietary reasons. There was a powerful, powerful reason why they were given the king's food, which we'll get to. At the end of the three years, and they were selected for a civil service job in the government of Babylon. So here's what happened to these young men. You ready? They were literally put through the most intense assimilation program, culturally like none other. But watch this. You know what happens? Daniel and his friends, they accept the Babylonian names. We don't see them going, I don't like Belshazzar. I don't want to be Belshazzar. They accept the Babylonian names. They go, okay. Secondly, they accept the Babylonian education in the leading liberal arts university of Babylon. They accept everything that, that, that the university had to offer. And, and they become, they're willing to become educated and conversing with Babylonian culture. Literally, you guys, these young men are not only given a new name, and we'll talk about that in a moment, the significance of that, but they're immersed in a cultural assimilation program to the culture of Babylon, and we don't see hint of, I protest, I don't want to do it. We see them engaging, we see them learning, we see them being incredibly conversant and equipped 
with the Babylonian culture. As a matter of fact, here's what we'll see about Daniel, and this is going to freak some of you guys out. The education that Daniel received involved chanting, magic, astrology. And we don't see Daniel going, no, 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 no. I believe in God, Yahweh created. He, he accepts the education. Now, before anybody goes out here going, that's it, I'm done. I heard, I heard that pastor say this. Okay. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this. Daniel is given an opportunity to learn every part of that culture to make it understandable, and he learns it. He engages in it fully without, here's the key, losing his distinct identity as God's people. I mean, this to me is incredible. This to me is incredible. He immerses himself and engages the culture in every aspect of it, in a leading pagan liberal art university, the Harvard of that time, and yet he remains absolutely distinct, and when it comes time, and when it comes time he makes a stand for his God and refuses to compromise his convictions. Is that even possible? Before we get there and how and all that, a couple of things. The names. You know what the names symbolize? The names symbolize the fact that these young men, including Daniel, were culturally or spiritually bicultural. They were spiritually bicultural. What do I mean? Not spiritually schizophrenic. Spiritually bicultural. Like, where am I? To, spiritually, meaning they were just as fluent in the cultural language of Babylonians and could interact with anybody, including the elites, but they were also spiritually distinct as God's people. They somehow maintained the balance, as God says in Jeremiah 29, of not decreasing but increasing, remaining I- their identity, remaining distinct in their identity as people of God. And at the same time, as God said, move into the city, build houses, marry, have children, engage in the culture holistically. How do they do that? Don't you want to know? Okay. We're not going to get there yet. But I need to talk about two things. Before we get to the whole aspect of, we want to remain distinct, identity, so on and so forth, I want to spend just a brief moment this morning saying for some of us, some of us, you know what we need to do? Our motto has been, I don't want to cross that line. I don't want to cross the line because it means I'm compromising. So I'm going to stay as far back as I can without running into or, or falling into the temptation of sin. And what we've done essentially is we've withdrawn. We've separated. We're not conversant with our culture. We're not conversant or even engaging with our culture. Can I just tell you in some ways how? Some of you are Christians, and yet you have zero significant relationships with non-Christians today. Zero significant relationships with non-Christians today. No, I'm not talking about, you know, that whole thing of, we have those non-Christian friends, I put them, you know, quotes, friends, you know, the kind of, we're kind of witnessing, kind of the whole opportunity for Jesus, you know, kind of once in a while, you know, and so when somebody goes, do you have any non-Christian friends? You go, yeah, 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 he's my non-Christian friend, you know, and if you ask them, are they your friends? They'll be like, no, who the heck is that, you know, they have no idea, it's like, it's like friendship by proxy, you know, like, you're kind of like my, I'm talking about, do you have non-Christians who can call you up any time of the day and say, can we talk? And they know that they have access to you. Do you have non-Christian friends who know your story? Do you have any meaningful relationships with non-Christians that go beyond just, hey, how are you? See, this isn't rocket science, right? How, do you have significant, you have separated, you have withdrawn. You cannot think of one person who is a significant significant friend who doesn't know Jesus. Here's another. Are you conversing with the culture at large? Do you watch the news? I know there's tons of garbage in the news, but there's some good stuff too. Do you watch the news? Are you current with current events? Do you, once in a while, pick up People Magazine, (gasps) you know, People Magazine and browse through it. Why? Here's the thing, you guys. What is culture? You know what culture is? Culture is a set of system of beliefs and values that the culture, society, and world at large looks at and says, it is through culture we answer the big questions of life. Why am I here? Where am I going? What is the purpose of life? You listen to music. You listen to listen to music, you watch film, you observe the culture at large, and they're desperately trying to, through cultural things, answer the questions of why am I here? 
Do you know what your non-Christian friends' dreams are? Do you know what their hopes are? Do you know what their fears are? Do you know how they answer the big questions in life that the culture tries to answer for them? Do you know why 35 million people tune into American Idol? Do you think it's because people just love seeing Trainwreck? Okay, I got to admit, that's one of the reasons why I watch, okay? But another reason is you can't help but observe and saying, there is a desperate yearning in everybody to find significance, find value, find sense of worth, find somebody to go, yeah, you're all right. Do you know? I had a, a Moody student come up to me. Oh, I didn't mean to say that. I was going to say I had a student who goes to a Christian school in downtown Chicago came up to me. And, um, and this student said something. She, she came up to me and she said, Pastor Peter, I was homeschooled. I go to a Christian university. I'm surrounded in there by Christians all day, every day. And then she said this. She finished it from me. She goes, what you're talking about, does this mean then that I have to like leave the campus, maybe find a job in a place where I'll be around non-Christians and work there? And I thought, yes! That's exactly what it means. I was like, wow, that's really good. I thought it was going to be a question. I, I was going to have to go. And she just kind of finished off. She's like, is that what it means? That I need to radically, radically think through areas in which I could forcefully remove myself so that I'm around Christians to learn about culture. What are you willing to do? Before I move on, this is one of the ways or one of the areas, one of the reasons I should say why we don't even know how to talk to non-Christians. I found this on the website. These are some of the more common starting point, conversational points for Christians with non-Christians. You ready? This is how another Christian when they finally engage in spiritual conversation, this, these, are, these are the pickup lines, if you will, right? <laughs> this, this is this one. So do you consider yourself a good person? Yeah, well, I've got some bad news. <laughs> That's awesome, you know what I mean? <laughs> Stephen, you'll like this one. Nice to meet you, Stephen. Did you know that there was a guy in the Bible who was stoned to death for his beliefs about Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? <laughs> Here's the one that we all heard, right? If you were to, say it with me, die tonight. <laughs> why would you want to say that? Why, why, why would you want to go to a non-Christian and say, if you were to die tonight? You know what I mean? But the best of them all, and look, I don't make the fun, look, if you're not a Christian here today, we're just making fun of ourselves, okay? That's all we're doing. How about this one? How about this one? Or you can follow the way of the master. Anybody familiar with way of the master? The way of the master is this radical evangelistic tool that Kirk Cameron of Growing Pains fame came up with. Do you know what happens in the first two, three minutes? I, I, I watch this with horror and shock. I commend him for his courage. I wish I was courage, more courageous as he was. So I want to give him props. But in the first two minutes, you try and remind the people, this is their method, that they're hypocrites, liars, thieves, and adulterers in the first two minutes. And then if they admit that, then you bring up the conversation about lake of fire. No joke. No joke. I love watching it, though, because there's something about seeing Mike Seaver bring it, you know what I mean? <laughs> something about like, well, it's, Mike, you go, you know? It's like, wow. Sorry. That's a, that's a reference to some of us that are a little older. Do you, even, do you even know how to talk to someone who doesn't know Jesus? Church, I know that for many of us, our problem isn't that we live in little Christian ghettos, but I gotta say it. How radically committed are you to engaging culture? How radically committed are you to engaging culture? Are you living in a little Christian bubble? I love Paul in Acts chapter 17. The dude is walking around quoting current poetry. He's walking around knowing the latest religious and philosoph philosophical ideas. He's able to converse with people. Do you know how to engage the culture at large around you? Let's go on, you guys, okay? Let's finish this story, verse 8. It's a long passage. 
Here, verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, Look, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Hananiah, uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Look, give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. Verse 14. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine and they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. Finally, we come to this fascinating portion about food. Of all the things, of all the things that these guys could have been like, this is where I make my stand. They make a deal out of the food. What the heck? What was it about this food that was so, as they say, defiling to them? We'll look at that word a moment. Defiling to them that they said, this is where we draw the line. We're not going to go beyond this. Now, scholars and commentaries have been divided about what it was. Some people say that it's because of the food was in accordance with the kosher mosaic laws. But the problem with that is there may have been part of the food that was against the kosher mosaic laws, but wine wasn't one of them. So their ability to drink wine was not in violation. So it wasn't because of the, the, the dietary restrictions. Some people say it's because the food was sacrificed to idols, to Babylonian gods. And so as a result, they didn't want to partake of the food that was sacrificed to idols, possibly. But the author of the book of Daniel is silent on that. Actually, the reason why they didn't take the food was a little more subtle, but a lot more like, oh. The striking thing, though, here, before we get to that, you notice there's nothing intrinsically unlawful or sinful about the food. They're not violating any biblical laws or Bible scripture passages as they do not. They're not violating something that the scripture directly addresses. This is a, uh-oh, not black or white, but a gray issue. This is one of those areas in which scripture doesn't directly address. There's nothing lawful about it. There are no law passages. You know why I bring this up? As I mentioned last week, some of us, the way that we know we've assimilated into a larger culture is this. If in regards to your work, if in regards to that club you want to play in, if in regards to those people you want to hang out with, if in regards to any of the things in life that we're like, God, I don't want to assimilate. If in regards to those things, you never ever ask the question of how does the gospel, how does Jesus Christ in my life, how does my followers, a commitment of Christ affect the decisions that I make? If you never ask those questions about what you do, you've already assimilated. You've already assimilated. An actor who says, I could take part, I could take that part, but I don't know which part I should take because I, a guy who says, I could take that job, that job, but never ask the question, how does the gospel, how does my commitment and faith to Jesus Christ ultimately influence what choice I make? If you never pray and ask that question, you've already assimilated. Christ isn't at the center of the decision-making process. Talked to Jolly this week who said, Peter, that hit me like a ton of bricks. I used to pray that prayer every day. God, wherever I go, how does my commitment to you affect who I talk to, what I do? How does it do that? And she said, for the last few months at the new work I've been, I just never even asked that question. But here's the other powerful thing, though. If in regards to decisions, you're one of those people, where are the verses, what chapter, book, this, and this is how you talk because you're kind of a robot and you don't know how to think outside of and, where, and you're going, there is no Bible verses. Oh, what do I do? And you despair at the fact that there are no Bible verses that directly hit on that. And as a result, you, if you do that, you've already separated. You've already withdrawn. If you insist that there has to be these rules that guide you, guard you, we've become a Pharisee. This is exactly what the Pharisees did. God gave them the law of Moses. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, strength. And in order for them to go, but I don't know exactly what that means, so they came up with hundreds and hundreds of rules after rule after rule after rule that governed their behavior because they could not function as a believer without rules. Are you one of them? <laughs> Let me ask you this. Do you know someone like that? This 
is how we Christians oftentimes interact. Rules. Where are the rules? Where are the Bible passages? And there's nothing wrong with Scripture and truth. We are absolutely committed to Scripture and truth. But there will be areas in your life where God says wisdom, prayer, thought, discernment, not Bible verses and rules. Because if you disparage the fact that there aren't Bible rules and rules, you will automatically withdraw because you'll be scared to engage. And you know what else we do? We make up our own rules anyway. <laughs> I have my list of top 10, and if you do this, you are not a good Christian. And somebody else in this church goes, that's not even on my top 10. If you do these things, you're not a Christian. And we judge everybody else by the own rules that we make. And, the, and God says, not the Christian life I chose. The most striking thing about this is that there's nothing intrinsically unlawful or sinful about the food. They didn't reject the food because it simply broke a rule. By the way, if you're not a Christian here today, can I just talk to you for like 15 seconds? Jesus Christ didn't die on the cross and rise again to establish religion. He died to establish a vital relationship with you. And if somehow you've been led to believe that Christianity is about a bunch of rules and whether you do them or don't do them, and that's why you rejected it, you need to know today that is not at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ simply says, you can't follow the rules. You're not very good at following the rules. That's why I died for you, to be in relationship with you. Is that good news? But you know what the problem is? We begin the Christian life, yes, but then once we become a Christian, give me the rules. That's how we function. Okay, so what was the food? What is it about the food that, here's the issue, was a temptation from just beyond, moving, moving beyond engaging the culture and assimilating What was it about the food that was going to move them? It was a temptation to beyond learning, beyond just learning about culture, learning about the society they live in, to adopting the behavior, priorities, and values of the culture. What was it about the food that was a temptation for them to move beyond saying, I will be conversant with the culture and learn about it, to I'm going to assimilate? What was it about this food? Why was it defiling, which was Hebrew word for spiritual pollution? What was it about this food? Here it is. It's what the food represented. What do I mean? In that culture, and biblical commentary and scholars have, have, have commented on this, in that culture, the king's food and wine was a part of a rich, luxury-loving lifestyle that was the epitome of success, epitome of power, epitome of fame, epitome of you have made it. The king's food, the king's food was part of a rich, luxury-loving lifestyle that was the ideal of the elites in that pagan society. It's a culture and society in which people worship the idols of God, uh, idols of power, idols of money, idols of beauty, idols of success, idols of fame. The only difference is they had wooden stone figures that they bowed to and gave homage to that gave them what they sought after. end result is the same. It's a culture inundated with idolatry of money, success, power, beauty, and fame. Aren't you glad we don't live in that kind of a society anymore? <laughs> We're so much more modern these days. Do you know why Daniel rejected the food? The food was a temptation. Daniel knows something that we all know inherently, and that is this. Our hearts are hardwired to worship something. There's no such thing as a non-worshipper. Our hearts are hardwired in a way that we will seek something to find value, significance, or worth. We will find something that we will give our allegiance and our loyalties to. Daniel knows a truth that we know all too well these days, and that is people will seek whatever it is that they can to give them significant meaning and life. Why does he reject the food? Simple and yet profound. Eating the food that represented power, status, uh, fame, uh, ultimate of beauty in that culture. Eating of that food is a temptation for him uh, to move beyond the worship of his one true God who he finds his significant life and worth in to worshiping other idols of that culture in which he could find significance, worth, and life in. 
Daniel is surrounded and inundated by a culture that says, you can have it, Daniel. You can have it, Daniel. You can have it, Daniel. And Daniel says, me partaking in this is just one step away from me going, I will worship it. Are you tracking? Do you know what principle this teaches us? Those gray areas, black or white, what should I do? Do you know why they're so dangerous? The critical thing is not what rules are there. The critical thing is whatever it is that you are wrestling with, that may be that thing that your heart struggles with idolizing. And it is the instrument and the venue that can pull you right into from worshiping the one true God to making something else the object of your worship. I'll talk about this more next week. This is not an issue if Christ is your beauty. This is not an issue if Christ is your real treasure. This is not an issue if Christ is your real significance and your worth. This is not an issue if Christ reigns supreme in your life and you worship him and him only. It's not about breaking rules and what's right and what's wrong, so on and so forth, first and foremost. It's about what is this going to cost me to do that may take me away from my soul, undivided worship of my God. The question when you're asking, is it okay for me to move into that neighborhood, join that club, be a part of that association, hang out with those people? The question isn't, but they're not Christian, not Christian. They're not. The question isn't, the question is, what idol is working in your heart that would pull you away from God to worshiping idol of success, money, fame, power, beauty? Status idol working in your life will cause you to spend an enormous amount of money in things to get into circles of people, neighborhoods. Status idol, power idol working in your life will cause you to find jobs that are draining you, that are destroying your marriage and your relationships just so you can get into the higher income bracket. I don't want to be materialistic, but how much money do I spend on clothes that will keep me, you know, distinct and pure, not assimilate? The question you need to ask is, is Jesus Christ your real beauty? Or is the God of your life physical beauty and materialism? finding the balance of not assimilating but withdrawing separating is ask the question what is the fundamental object of my worship who is my God who is my God Uni you can come on up please I, I, I want to end with a, a, a short is it okay if I share just a short story? Is it okay? You need to come on up, please. You know, preachers usually, or pastors usually have like this thing where they go, okay, I need like a really good illustration to kind of end the sermon. So people go, oh, that was such a good story. You don't remember anything about the sermon, but you're like, oh, that was such a good story. Well, I don't have one this week, okay? So, um, but I do have something that I thought was powerful. Powerful, powerful, powerful about if I can just kind of capture in a short essence of what I'm talking about for us to be individually as a community, radically, radically engaging culture and yet remaining distinct. Um, Anna said that she wouldn't mind me sharing this. We had a leadership training where all of our leaders, and we're big on leadership development training in our church, we had all the leaders gathered together on Saturday from nine to like noon to go training, right? And the entire I was sharing with Michael that I was very frustrated because we didn't have enough leadership to this thing. I'm going, what kind of a church are we? Where are the leaders and why are they not committed? So on and so forth, right? And then I got another email from another leader saying, I can't make it, sorry. But here's the context in which Anna shared. I just, it just blew me away. She, many of you won't know, uh, know Anna. She works as a nurse. And for the last year and a half, she has been building a relationship with the Muslim family and taking care of one of their sons, 16 years old. And he passed away on Thursday or Friday? On Friday. And Anna had the audacity, you know, to email and go, I can't go because I need to be at the funeral of this radical Muslim family. I was there when he exited the world and I want to be there for the family. The audacity. So I asked her this morning, how was it? She said, boy, they're pretty radical Muslims. You know, she said, 
they told her flat out, they said, we have been praying for you and we are going to convert you. <laughs> I'm serious. To which Anna said, and those of you that know Anna, she goes, well, you know what? I've been praying for you and I'm going to convert you. So there. And I just thought, that's awesome. That is just awesome. Because if I had my choice, and you guys were like, Peter, I could give him my time in church, and I want you to do that and develop and build leaders and all this stuff. And you had your choice of saying, but you know what? I, I am out as a nurse in the hospital working vitally to build relationships with Muslims, with Hindus, atheists, and people that don't even know Jesus. And when somebody passes away, my priority says I'm at their funeral as the only Christian present. not in some office where Christian leaders are being trained, which is important. Oh, how I pray for you, new community, that you would be that bold, that you would be that radical. As we go through this sermon series, don't come alone. Invite your friends. Invite your non-Christian. Invite people that don't know Jesus. Invite people who know Jesus but have fallen off the face of the earth and come sit with them and go on a journey. what it means to be a radical follower of Christ. Let your light shine so that all men may know that you belong to him. Bow your heads. Let's pray together. This morning, um, and I've been praying about this this whole week, I feel, I feel like we as a church community, instead of being judgmental and criticized, I feel like we as a church community, you guys, really need to be there for each other and support each other. The reality is we can't do this apart from community, you know. And I guess this week as I was praying about this message and preparing, my heart really, really went out to those of you who feel stuck. who feel stuck spiritually, actually, because you feel stuck in, in this aspect of what it means to, to live this radical life, engaging the culture and world at large. You don't have any significant relationships to non-Christians. You're the only Christian in your sphere of influence, and you have kept quiet about your faith because you're afraid. because of your church background, upbringing, because of the fear of assimilating, you've withdrawn and separated, so much so that people don't even know why you do what you do as a follower of Jesus. And this morning, I want to just offer up a prayer for you especially. And church, I want to ask you to pray with me. Can you do that? You don't have to know these people individually. You may know their names, you may not, but can we just spend a moment before the worship team leads us in this song of declaration, this, this prayer for each other, our brothers and our sisters, that they would step out of their comfort zones. You know, amazingly, that's vitally related to our own spiritual health and vitality. Our stagnancy and spiritual deadness will come. when you live a life of withdrawal and separation. So spend a moment with me right now as we pray for our brothers and sisters that we together corporately will be a church, a collective community that will be intentional. Seek God and be this witnessing community radically engaged in the culture at large. And now will you spend a moment praying for yourself as you face this week. Monday is just around the corner. 
pray for your workplace, pray for your classes, your school, pray for your family, your neighborhoods. What kind of week would you like to see as God powerfully works in and through you in that place where he has called you? For those of you that need prayer, our prayer team, our staff, and our leaders will be up here. Please come pray with us before you go if you need prayer. Have a good week, you guys, as we continue this journey. Let's learn and grow together, okay? All right, have a great week. Have a great week. Take care.